Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, my friends, and welcome to this, the first episode of The Underdog Football Show. My name is Josh Norris, thrilled to present this show to you, and thrilled to be back on a microphone, and employed. And what a first show we have. So here's the basic idea of episode number one, a deep dive into the top quarterback prospects in the 2021 NFL Draft, and then where they might go, and other teams that have quarterback threads throughout the entire offseason. It is long as you can tell by the time code on your download. So I won't waste too much time before we get started. In the second half, we have Charles Robinson, who I know has tremendous connections inside the NFL and is very willing to relay that information to all of us. We outline every single part of the trade that happened, I guess, about 10 days ago. We talked through the top two picks. We talked through the 49ers, the, the Dolphins, and their quarterback situation. What's the future of Deshaun Watson? How I don't believe the Carolina Panthers are in the quarterback market at all at pick number eight. And even Aaron Rodgers' future in Green Bay. You don't want to miss it. Tons of nuggets and wisdom are dropped. And in the first half, it's J.T. O'Sullivan. Hopefully you know of J.T. O'Sullivan. I think a decade in the NFL, but most recently has launched a YouTube channel called The Quarterback School, an absolutely incredible resource. What he does so well is outline play calls and designs and puts it in simple terms for those of us outside the NFL and then explains the quarterback's part in it. If it was successful, if it wasn't, why? And if they even transcended the play. It's so good. Multiple parts for every single quarterback prospect in this class. Highly recommend that and all of his other content. Before we get there, I, I do want to say that this is a new venture, as you can tell. Starting new podcasts is difficult. You know, there are a few football podcasts out there already. So, you know, finding a little wedge where we can get in and try to expand can be tough. You can be a major part in helping that. If at any point in this show, you enjoy it for a moment, subscribe and take five extra seconds to leave a five-star rating. I can't tell you like in the first few weeks, the first month of a podcast, how much of a help adding extra reviews can do for us to grow this show immediately. So again, if you find yourself enjoying this, you know, if, if 10, 50, 100, 200 of you did that, it would be incredible. All right, without further ado, let's get the first half of the show, JT O'Sullivan, and I just kicked it off by asking him like how and why he decided to start his own project and start creating content online. Well, I appreciate the kind words first. 
uh, it started as really putting my toe back into football. I really took like a five-year break going back to school. I just needed a break uh, from the experience and just what it what it did to me physically, emotionally, mentally. And so to put my toe back into ball, I would look across the landscape of what's going on and had never – and don't still don't want to do anything to do with like media. I just think it's it's – it's difficult business and I just left a difficult business and I, and I'm just don't have aspirations in that world. But I was kind of just looking, I tried to peek a little bit around the corner. I knew where I was getting all my content. I was watching a lot of YouTube and I was looking for a place that could kind of mold what I really enjoyed about the game, the football element of it, but then also kind of the educational element, what I basically wish existed when I was kind of starving for more football. And so really trying to touch that with kind of the buckets that I exist in. Like I'm a fan, uh, I'm a former player, I'm a coach. And so trying to have all those buckets kind of in one pool to do whatever I want to do. That's the beautiful thing about it, right? Like I get to do whatever subject I want to do, whatever offense I want to do. And so it's all those great parts uh, for me. And I just do things that I think are interesting and I'm curious about and, and see where it goes. And it's been a blast and I've enjoyed it way more than I ever thought I would. Yeah, you seem to have an excellent community, and everyone out there, I'm sure you're going to go check it out after you listen to this episode, not during, uh, after, no matter how good JT is uh, on this. And I'm so glad that you agreed to this 35 minutes as part of the media. I really, truly uh, do appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to talk about the the 2021 quarterback class here, namely five names. But before we dive into that, I I do want to start off with like a big picture quarterback question here you know 2015 2016 Jameis Winston Marcus Mariota Goff Wentz one two one two that would indicate you know those top two selections that these are emphatic evaluations near perfect evaluations for those NFL teams now all four of those names are no longer on the teams that selected them and meanwhile you have like some of the best young quarterbacks in the league were taken well outside the top two and Patrick Mahomes Josh Allen Lamar Jackson. And if we can take anything from that, that means there were some like perceived flaws or imperfections, concerns in their game, but all have been brilliant individual talents. So I know that's only five or six years ago, but I can't help but ask JT is what it takes to win at the position different now? Like how has it changed in your eyes in the last few years, if at all? Yeah, I don't know if I would frame the question like this, and this is not probably not a great answer, but so much of this, and this is, I think it's hard for people to understand. It's hard for me to digest and hold all the time because even going through it, but so much of this is luck. Hmm. And what I mean by that is not luck, like physical ability to be in the league. You know, there, there are certain benchmarks that you have to hit, but you're not, you don't control where you go. You don't control the offense you walk into. You don't control the stability of the organization, the stability of the coaching staff. That part of it is the luck part of it. So when you're being picked one and two, you're being picked one and two because that franchise is in the bar- the bottom of the barrel of the league. And so it's going to be hard to go there and be successful. It just is. It doesn't mean that it never happens. It's just difficult. And so that's my initial reaction to it. The other part about it is when you're not – selected at that elite spot and even when back in the day you know back in my day when you were drafted that high it was still kind of rare to walk in and play you know you you were still kind of groomed to a certain extent and so that grooming process is really gone for most franchises if they pick you that high you're playing and so even the guys you look across the league like people love to say you know Aaron Rodgers Patrick Mahomes those guys sat 
that wasn't that long ago. Now, Aaron was a while ago, but like they're in stable organizations with, you know, somewhat stable head coaches. And it's just a, that part of it, you don't control in American sports, which is just weird for me. Uh, you know, I, I know people love the draft because it does create this tension and this great kind of football calendar, yeah. but it is bizarrely un-American, you know, for me, someone who's a fan of sports across the, you know, the global landscape that it's just a, it's a bizarre thing that you have the best player goes to the worst team mm-hmm. and then they're bus if they don't make it in a organization that's struggling. All right, let's dive into this 2021 class. And then there's a whole bunch of different ways that we could do that. But maybe the best way, at least the one I've chosen for today, is to just go by what we at least think the NFL is going to do with the top two. And we can go from there and grouping the top two, then go through the next three. And obviously the first selection will be Trevor Lawrence, the Jacksonville Jaguars. And as you know, Trevor Lawrence has been in the national spotlight for years and years. And I, I think because of that, there's like this expectation of perfection when talking about him and when you go in to look at him. And personally, I just don't think that that's true when you watch him. Like there are one, two, or three snaps that I wish I could give back to him so he could make those decisions again or make those throws again. But then on the other hand, and I think what is most important is that there are like three to five plays per game where he turns losses into wins. Like he absolutely can change the course and and the trajectory of a game. And that's obviously just specialness and a really almost rare prospect, what I see coming out. What do you see with Trevor Lawrence when you've been watching him? I I totally agree. In fact, I I think he's so, I I think you're right on across the board. It feels like you know Trevor Lawrence because he's been in the spotlight for so long and you're just so aware of him that you don't realize that he is still so young Got, still has a, what I would consider a significant room to continue to improve, to be more consistent to what you're talking about on a handful of those throws where, you know, when you have that much hype and people are like, well, you didn't really live up to it. Well, you, you had him pegged as the best prospect, you know, in the last decade. So, like, <laughs> right. who's living up to that? And so you, you forget the other pact that I don't know what his stats are off the top of my head, but the dude's a giraffe and he runs really well. And, and I mean, you know, it's that type of that there aren't people walking around like that when you're a freak of freaks on a in a program of freaks, you know, and you have the ability to run and make plays like he does. And I think a lot of people who look at him and watch him would say, hey, there are still plays where he can get better and be yep. more consistent, which is kind of scary. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I I don't know how they're, you know, how it's not a consensus. I know, you know, there, there's lots of reasons for it not to be probably, but I personally am a big fan of his, been rooting for him for a long time, been honestly in awe for a long time. I couldn't imagine going to college and doing what he did. Doesn't look so effortless at times for him, right? Like he, he's so smooth. And I mentioned those three to five plays per game and, and one kind of stands out. It was against... I mean, he had a number of these plays, numerous. Um, against UNC, like it was third and nine, the defense sent more, and especially one, I think it was a delayed either linebacker or safety blitz. And while the left guard got a clip on him, he was also able to evade, strafe, st- climb the pocket, then run parallel to his left to the line of scrimmage, and then fire just this laser beam, this rocket, around three or four UNC defenders to a Clemson wide receiver that was working back from the the sideline towards the middle of the field. And, you know, you might see one or two or three of these plays on the highlight reels 
for a prospect for an, an entire season. Well, we've got three seasons of them, and again, three to five times per game. It's, it's absolutely wild to me how he can win as an individual in an offense that is filled with individual talents at times. I think you're totally spot on. I think any time, oh, lack of a good, better analogy, when someone, when a quarterback has the size and just physical ability that he does and just kind of the smoothness to be able to basically like win off the dribble whenever he wants. And so that ability to create, uh, I think obviously, you know, is, is it as relevant as it's ever been when you look across the landscape of the league, because there are just times a handful of plays. And I remember being in the league, we would talk about this. We're going to have five scramble plays every game. Now, they can't be disasters, but there are opportunities for big plays. Well, when he's making you know 60% of those big plays every game, that's a significant advantage. And he's doing everything else right, just running the offense. And so I, pers- I totally agree. I think the other thing that jumps off the film for me when I watch him, they run him. Like he's, there are built in runs that are not like, uh, you know, quarterback outside zone. He's running like almost like Q counter and Q, uh, elements of like what people call bash or stuff like where he's in the run read running in between the tackles, which he will do in the league in the red zone. And so those types of things are just, it's so hard to defend a guy like that. And, and you just don't realize how good of an athlete he is until you see him stride out you know, like a thoroughbred away from really good college football players. And we'll get to a couple of these other names that are so good outside of structure and and so athletic. I mean, running four fours, four fives, whatever it is. And I think because it is such a great class, sometimes the athleticism of other players, we forget just how athletic Trevor Lawrence is. And you mentioned the red zone work and how it'll be used as, as an athlete, as like a pocket passer plus. And it only makes me think of, and I'm not comparing the two at all, but like how Josh Allen is so effective in that area and improving just with his composure. And I would say Trevor Lawrence already has that composure a lot of times. And just from watching your content, sometimes he does tend to hold like his, his read on open windows and maybe wait a beat or two too long or occasionally fails to like see that pre-snap pressure packages. Is that something that can end up being a critical flaw. I know those are kind of two isolated instances that I'm just throwing at you. Is there anything in his game that you are worried about when translating to the next level? Not in the the kind of examples that you're given there. Those to me are things where unless you're in the room, you know, you don't really know what they're asking him to do. Is he responsible for that pressure? Is he responsible to redirect the protection? Is are they, you know, was that something they weren't expecting? It's hard to that's the thing about all these evaluations it's almost kind of like nonsensical to pretend that you know exactly what it's supposed to do i know you know it's frustrating for me sometimes to be like i don't know what's going on on this play you know i wish i could ask them and that's why they have the interviews right that's why all of this kind of this is just you know incomplete and even incomplete at the highest levels because who knows if you're getting the truth when you're asking those questions about hey hop on the board here's an example this example what happened on this play why did you get hit why are you hot all those types of things where then they can really talk through and understand it. I've heard people say that his offense is college that you know he'll be asked to do different things in the league. Every offense is college It's college. <laughs> I don't understand that that like it's not the NFL. So I you know those are those are lazy takes for me. And so I'm a massive fan of Trevor Lawrence. I the only thing that con- concerns me like any young prospect getting drafted that high, you're getting drafted that high to an organization that's struggling. Yeah. So some people have the capacity to elevate that. You know, I think of like Peyton Manning, but it's 
it's also a little rare. You know, Indianapolis was not a bad organization. They just picked high that year. And so it's it's a it's a fine line. It's just really hard to do. And so, you know, I'm fascinated to see how it how it turns out. I know, you know, Daryl Bevel in Jacksonville and what they'll kind of ask him to do. And I hope that they find a way to kind of accentuate the great unique talent that Trevor Lawrence has and can develop it into what he can do on Sundays. Because I think that there are things that they did at Clemson that absolutely translate to Sundays. I don't understand the whole uh, college offense thing when, you know, Deshaun Watson looks pretty good when he was in the hmm. college offense and he looks pretty good as a player. Well, let's go to Zach Wilson now. Zach Wilson out of BYU. The body of work is quite different than Trevor Lawrence. I mean, Wilson just has 10 career games against opponent in top five conferences and non-top five teams who went to bowl games. I mean, that's 10 over, I think, a three-year career. Um, he makes miraculous plays downfield at times, highlight real catches by his wide receivers and in contested situations off platform, off script. JT, I must ask, since I am a subscriber at the quarterback school, you posted a video just today, day of this recording of Zach Wilson, colon, what am I missing? So when you ask yourself that question, JT, what did you see? I feel like I am missing a little bit of the hype. I also am a big fan of Zach Wilson. I am jealous of the, how he throws the ball. I mean, it's. I agree with all the takes that it is special. I love the smoothness. I love the precision. I love the fundamentals, the repetition of what he's able to do mechanically, I think is really special. And I think that at some point there is like this snowball narrative that kind of takes over and you lose sight of the full picture, the full body of his college work. Now, I'm not a pro scout. I'm not in a personnel department. If I was, I'd go back and watch every single throw. I'd go back and talk to players that he played with last year, this year. What was the difference? Why the jump? You know, all those types of things to better understand. There's no reason to think that the jump he made this year can't be, you know, continue to jump. You see players like Josh Allen, everybody loves to talk about the jump in a year. Well, you know, that's just the jump that we see. I always think that those that's years of work. And so where is he on his kind of projection into the league? I am, and and I think this comes across in the videos, uh, I, I like Zach Wilson. I think he does really cool things. I'm just not as hyped up as some people seem to be. And I, it's not like I'm watching a lot of TV, but I can just feel it on social media and people coming in coming at me saying, you know, you got to do this. You got to watch this. Well, every time I watch a Zach Wilson video, uh, there t- people tell me that's his worst game. He mm-hmm. did his worst game. And I'm like, well, like I, I, I think I, people maybe think I'm more strategic than I am. I don't have every single game that, that, in college football. And so I do what I have. I just look for like what I think is the best opponent. Well, I looked at his opponents. I did Boise. I did San Diego state. I did Houston. I don't know if I did coastal Carolina or not, but like now I'm going to have to go watch North Alabama because people tell me that's his best game. Well, there's an element of me that says I just feels, I don't know, manufactured or. And I'm not saying that you're responding to this. I just think probably your audiences. And this is part of like this media cycle. And I would say part of it's the NFL cycle because it certainly seems like based on reports and based on trade discussions that Zach Wilson is going to be the number two selection. So just naturally, that means on some level, he is linked to Trevor Lawrence. I agree with you. I'm a big fan of Zach Wilson's game. And that would be in 2021. That would if he was in the 2019 draft class and the 2020 draft class, whatever it is. But I cannot get to the point where I place him in like that same tier as Trevor Lawrence. Like I think Lawrence is head and shoulders above that. And we're going to talk about some other names that I would probably even 
thrust above Zach Wilson. And this might sound crazy because Zach Wilson played at BYU and Trevor Lawrence played at Clemson, but Wilson had like a better surrounding because his offensive line, I thought, was absolutely dominant this year. So that allowed him to obviously work inside of the script and the structure of an offense, but then was also able to accentuate these circus theatrical plays that he certainly does make off script and also had wide receivers who against their competition were able to go up and get it. Meanwhile, I thought Trevor Lawrence had to, you know, work around disruption and pressure and SEC defenses and ACC defenses and all this type of stuff. That, that's just part of this whole draft process. The evaluations, why it is so difficult and why it kind of, and some levels it is luck is because the situations with all these prospects is certainly not the same, but in the end, you have to compare them all. I think the other thing that's just me being lazy from my position is I'm coming at this as just from, you know, this side of a screen. I don't have any uh, allegiance to a organization, to a situation. And so when you, when I try to empathize with what the jets are going through, okay, you're going to make this decision to go this route. Is it that different than Sam Darnold? Like, is it really like it, what, what, what is the difference? And I, and I get the reason why you would want to, again, we ta- already talked about uh, rookie deals with, with quarterbacks and, and those types of things I think is important, but I just don't see it as, as a massive improvement. You know, maybe that's just me off my rocker. I think you're, I don't think you're wrong with, with your take on what it was. I think when I go back and try to really watch it, I just, I hear people say superstar. I hear people say guaranteed hit. I just don't see that like I and maybe I need to watch more of it. But at this point, I I agree that it's special throws. It's flashy. I personally, the same as you, I love the BYU offense. Now, I'm not a huge wide zone fan. It's just a coach. But what they do offensively and what they were doing this year was fun to watch. They were Mm -hmm. creative. Now, it helps when you've got a quarterback back there. That's a first round quarterback. But superstar in the league. I don't know. So let's end the Zach Wilson conversation because I know you like him. I know that I like him, and I don't want to get rid of this negative tone, possibly, that we're, we're creating here. So how can Zach Wilson succeed where Sam Darnold failed? Like, what are the individual elements of Zach Wilson's game that you think are an improvement or just good in general compared to other quarterback prospects? I, th- I think compared to well, just let, for my own simplicity in my head, let's go Sam Darnold in New York. He's going to get a new you know leadership group, coaches, new set of organization, or basically a restart. Uh, he's probably more accurate than than Sam Darnold is. I think that they're pretty similar. Like I remember Sam Darnold being a really good playmaker. Like you see, everybody's seen the same throw. You know, you run to the left, you throw to the right. Mm-hmm. It like. That element is not that much of a differentiator. I think he is a better thrower of the ball and naturally, not naturally, he's worked his craft. He's got a more consistent stroke than Sam Darnold. I just don't necessarily think it's, you go from like, you know, the number two pick in the draft to now, hey, next year, they're uh, they're going to win their division for sure with Zach Wilson playing quarterback. I, I just don't, I, I think that they've got other gaps as an organization. And you're just, when you're starting out with a new staff in a, you know, during a pandemic, there's just so many potential holes and pitfalls in in new york like i mean it's just a it seems like it's going to be a challenge on a number of levels okay so after number two we have no clue what's going to happen lots of rumors and suggestions on what could happen number three but let's just talk you know individual prospects from here on out if 
Zach Wilson, and tell me if I'm interpreting your wrong your, your words incorrectly. If Zach Wilson isn't your second favorite quarterback in this class, who might it be among the next three? Uh, well, I was I was going to let you go first. Okay, <laughs> I think it's I think it. This is more interesting now because obviously what the 49ers did. The 49ers basically said we are fine with the top three quarterbacks, and so what that looks like. It's fascinating for me that people think that Mac Jones is in that discussion. Hmm. Now, I that's that's just me. I personally think that it is you know essentially Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, and that that that's for me. If I was going to bet the future, my job, those types of things on what the potential is of a quarterback, those two guys have, in my opinion, the biggest upside. Let's talk about Justin Fields. There's so much hype around so many other names like you just mentioned with Zach Wilson and, and Mac Jones that at some point, just not enough words are going to be spent on the type of prospect that Justin Fields is and the type of player he can be. I don't know if I can fill that void. The, I, I think it is always weird. Uh, and this, I don't know if you want to take it down this path, but this weird where, you know, certain narratives mirror what I think the country is most used to. I don't know if that's lazy or what, but the, I think it's fair. the, the idea saying that, uh, you know, we have concerns because of what school he plays at, you know, what are the recent, you know, quarterbacks to come out of that program to me, there's an element and a dog whistle for racism in that type of talk. And, and it's just that that's my interpretation of it. I think he's a better prospect than those two guys coming before him. Now, at the same time, you start hearing like things like, oh, he doesn't have the work ethic. He doesn't have this. He's the last person in the gym. Stuff like that to me is so lazy and disappointing yep. and frustrating. And if people don't say, hey, this person said that, this teammate said that, and he's willing to say that, then that stuff to me is really – it's it's borderline clown showish, and and it, and it's frustrating me on a number of levels because when I turn on the film, I see a dude who is – a freak of an athlete who's probably faster than damn near everybody who's bigger than everybody who's got a cannon he gets this all of a sudden there's a narrative that he gets locked on a number one receiver route i just don't see it again it, i'm not sure what games they're watching now there's stories about he doesn't have the desire do you, do you know if he loves it the guy literally took the lead in the in what my opinion is the absolute top tier academic conference and went toe to toe with presidents, athletic directors to allow them to play. He plays through broken ribs. He outplays the number one pick in the draft. Like, I just don't know what, uh, that's what I kind of say. Like, what am I missing? What am I missing? He's hyper competitive on the field. And you just mentioned it. I mean, he transferred up to Ohio state because he wanted to play football. Well, just happened last year to get football going in his own conference. We've seen him get hurt, get injured in games, return two plays later and absolutely carry his, his team to, to victories, to close games. And to what you said, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. And I'm not saying that this term was used, but often this draft cycle, we just hear the term character concerns thrown around. And without specifics, think of how many different layers character concerns, just that term can, can hold. And it can be so dangerous because we don't know what they can be for, for any prospect. And then it just can be repeated over and over and over again. And it goes back to what the route you were talking about. And it just feels like it's, it's clockwork, like recycled. We hear it every single year. And, and I'm with you from a, a talent standpoint, from a mental standpoint, when you see Justin Fields play, what is there not to love? I mean, the ball is an absolute rocket from his hands. He runs that four four five that you're talking about. He absolutely is willing to work to his his third 
progression is third read, and it's not like just that's it's closer to the line of scrimmage. At times, it's a freaking vertical wrap on that third throw. I, yep. the, the more you watch him, because I, I'm, I'm with you, I, I don't necessarily get to these college prospects as early as some people. And so some of those, no matter how much I tried to push him away, some of those negatives that popped up, you know, they, they were creeping closer to my vision. Well, then I watch him, and again, I ask, what is there not to love about Justin Fields? Yeah, and, I, and I'm not going to be the person that's going to be able to tell you, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say that he didn't play his best yep. necessarily in a condensed season. And so, yeah, does that impact it? Yes. And he battled back. And he had a great performance against the number one pick in the draft. You know, there are just so many things that I feel like because of certain things all of a sudden get magnified and you whether you want to frame it like character issues whether you want to frame it as work ethic issues that stuff is so frustrating and sloppy and i couldn't imagine being part of either him or his camp working so hard to have this be the recycled story that just constantly told when you see the flip side of it as kind of the you know the, the white savior type of thing where everything is great. You know, look at the jump he made in a year where these dudes, Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence have been going head to head for a half a decade. Right. I mean, they, they have competed at the absolute highest levels. You touched on it for a hot second uh, about the transfer thing. To me, a lot of the, tra- and I have to catch myself cause I'm, uh, I'm an old soul. I'm an old person, but like an old soul too, football wise, where back in the day transferring was kind of like, Hey, you lost a competition. You got to go somewhere else. If you want to play, that's just different. It's just different now, okay? It's just different. Whether you have the uh, kind of bookends to be able to understand the portal or what people want to do, they're there in college to play. And they want to play in the absolute best opportunity. You know, nobody knocks Joe Burrow for transferring. I, I just don't, you know, it's it's one of those things where yeah. if it fits your narrative, it, you're going you're gonna to stick to it and, and it's frustrating when you turn on the film because I think he uh, deserves an opportunity to be in the consideration at the top of this thing. Yeah, some draft discourse and it happens every single year is just absolutely toxic. And I think you outlined it really well on, on the points that it was. And just quickly about his football ability. I mean, there's some real like anticipation to his game too. I mean, there's this throw against Penn State that really stands out to me that I mean, I think he takes like a blind rollout from under center, a pre-snap read on the outside, and he lets the football go and gets hit, like flattened face to face before the wide receiver on the outside is even breaking back on his 17-yard comeback, like looking towards the football. I mean, both those things, and it's, it's a rocket, it's a laser. Both those things happening on a 17-yard comeback with this type of prospect that isn't perceived to be the number one and probably shouldn't be in this class. I mean, that to me is uncommon to find when talking about quarterback prospects each and every year. Is, is there one part of his game that, that you love the most? Oh, that's a good question. And the honest answer is no, it's all of the things. It really is like I, I, uh, and it's hard when you're not in the huddle, when you're not in the locker room, but when you're around people who are freaks of freaks like this, again, you know, there are multiple guys in this draft that when you would, you know, they look the part and they exceed your expectations with their athletic ability, what the film says, you know, what they're asked to do at the absolute highest level. It's a, it's one of those things for me. I think when you turn on the film for me, I was shocked at the consistency of throwing the ball outside the numbers. And then the other thing that just pops is you can tell like when the work ethic thing to me is mind boggling because you turn on the film, he's chasing down guys to block for his teammates. I mean, it's just stuff that like, you, you know, is the exact opposite of what you're hearing as far as the, 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 
the hot takes on him that for me, you know, there was one clip where he runs 80 yards, looks like he runs faster than the tailback yeah. and b- makes a block, you know, within the five yard line, <laughs> shoulder to shoulder. Like, how is that? You know, what, what, what am I missing? His acceleration is just absolutely outrageous. And I can't help but think we have seen negatives pop up about other quarterbacks in the past. But we're like when you list all of his, his pros on paper, big arm works inside of the pocket unreal outrageous acceleration accuracy even beyond the numbers on the outside of the field I, again it, it blows my mind that there are so many concerns right now if the concerns are even legitimate because it seems like whatever and again he's not perfect whatever imperfections there are there you can work with those you can work with those they get paid to coach at that level too. Like that's the other thing. I remember being around coaches where they're like, you know, do you like this guy? Yeah, we love that guy. Well, do you think about that? Yeah, we'll coach him. That's what my job is to coach. So yeah, you know, I totally agree. So we go from there and let's talk about Mac Jones. To be honest with you, JT, the more I watched Mac Jones, the more I liked him. And I wasn't expecting to think that or say that when this process started. I mean, there are some outstanding touch throws in stride and like narrow catch windows for, for perfect touchdowns. And I think what the root of his evaluation goes to is that his eyes and, and processing seem super fast. And that's only accentuated obviously with the playmakers and the talent that surrounded him. The majority of people that I've heard kind of give me thoughtful takes on him say the same thing. He's better than we thought. Uh, I think the thing that really resonated with me watching Alabama this year is they were different with him. Now they had some some legitimate dudes on the outside, you know, when they were fully healthy. But even not, they were, you know, I think Tua was so RPO-ish, where Mac Jones was more play action shots, vertical stretches down the field. To your point about some, there were some anticipation throws that they were in, you know, further down the field beyond that second level. And so I think you're I don't I don't think you're wrong. I, I think that there's a, it's always funny for me to hear people talk about it because didn't play early. Obviously, there was a lot of talent there. Gets his opportunity, shines. I love that story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think people knock him because he looks, he doesn't look the part for whatever the hell that's worth. That another just lazy, terrible take. You know, doesn't look the part uh, as far as what quarterbacks look like nowadays, if that makes sense. But does everything you ask him to do, you can tell he processes at a high level, plays fast, gets through reads, is he t- intelligent with the ball, is savvy in the pocket? Not quite. Uh, you know, I think we all got spoiled last year with Joe Burrow and that type of in-pocket performance. No one's going to be that. But the ability to stay alive and be smooth and move, you know, you can tell that he looks up to Brady, those types of things, you know, even from like how he does his shoes, the exact same as Brady. So like those types of things that are noticeable, but you know, I don't think anybody's going to get me, you know, threatened that, you know, he's going to get on the perimeter and beat him you know, on a, with, with his feet. And so he had a great season. Again, it's, it's hard to be for me to be as excited about that type of thing as I am about the other guys who have bodies of work, years of work, and it doesn't take anything away from his production this year. It was great. It was special. But I'm just not as comfortable projecting it onto Sundays when it wasn't, you know, the multiple years at the highest level, those types mm-hmm. of things. That it's just a it's a different kind of catalog to be able to choose from. Yeah, just 13 starts in his entire college football career. Uh, I'm going to give you maybe some negatives that I think of Mac Jones and tell me if I'm just off my rocker with them. Okay. Is that fair? Um, Try. 
<laughs> First, I think he has like a little tendency to, to like fall away from his throws, especially like when there's a free rusher. And I'm not saying like it necessarily was detrimental at the college game, but I wonder if like the trajectory of the ball will die in him at the NFL level when that happens. Did you notice that at all either? Uh, I didn't. Necess- I, I remember him kind of falling off a little bit. It, yeah. You know, that, that's going to happen to anybody. It doesn't matter if Mac Jones or anybody. If there's a free runner rushing at you, you, you it's not going to be fun, and the ball's probably not going to go where you want it to go. Uh, Unless your name is Justin Fields. <laughs> even that. <laughs> but, yeah, I think the thing for me that jumps off with Mac Jones is he's just better than people thought, and it's yeah. hard for people when they have their idea about, you know, what essentially is a, you know, a, for lack of a better way to describe it, a glorified backup for the majority of the time to go in there and play as well as they did. Well, they're really good. And he's a good football player. He's a good football player. He's at Alabama. Like, yeah, he's pretty good. Again, it's just hard for me to be able to say, yeah, because he did it this this year, I know for sure that he's worthy of what the 49ers gave up to pick third. I, I just don't see it. And that, that, I think that's the part that's hard for me to be like, you know, in a normal year, you know, just a random third pick in the draft. I still don't see it. But right. that's, you know, what they gave up. I just don't see it. Look, NFL teams – coaches, GMs, like it seems half their job, at least outwardly, is to lie to us often, but they have to be honest through free agency, through the NFL draft. And Kyle is being put in a spotlight right right now, Kyle Shanahan, in that he has to be honest. Like he has to tell us who his ideal quarterback is based on on this selection. And, And if it's Mac Jones, it's and not to use hyperbole here, but Kyle wanting to basically be the quarterback, like uh, be an extension of, of his offense from the sideline and to hit the open receivers that he creates, which he'll create for anyone and process and make the correct decision at all times. And I, I think that's fair. And, and maybe Kyle, because like the root of the conversation, it seems like always in San Francisco, it always goes back to Kirk Cousins somehow. Um, and look, it's not going to be wrong. Like Mac can play and, and win football games with Kyle if that's the case. But then JT, I also think like, well, what if Kyle realizes that, Hey, a lot of these quarterbacks are poised, comfortable inside of a pocket inside of the structure and offense and are going to hit the open wide receivers that I create for them. But then when we face, you know, the top defense coordinators, the top defenses, across the NFL when, you know, we're in the Super Bowl and the opposition has two weeks to figure out exactly what we're trying to do on script. What if I had someone who can win outside of it and who can elevate me, who can elevate the ceiling of this offense? And I hope that that's the case because there's certainly those types in this class. I agree. I mean, I, I think so. I, you know, I don't know Kyle at all. I, I think your take is totally dead on in fact i would go even further to say i would be more intrigued with kellen mond and what he would be able to bring to that situation than i would mac jones just because no i mean i like jimmy garoppolo i know people hate on him because of the super bowl and missing a post but when he's healthy is pretty good like is he that much different than mac jones i think the other two guys justin fields kellen mond have the potential to be higher and if you project them to be higher i don't i don't I don't know. Again, I feel like, uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time by myself in here. <laughs> and so sometimes I feel like I'm off my rocker because I don't have any, there is no like, Hey, you know, I'm not arguing with other scouts and they're saying you're, you're crazy. Look at how silly your score is. Right. But I, I do feel like there is an element of, of that to a certain degree. But to your point, you know, 
I, I would push back to the idea of saying that, hey, Mac Jones is just going to be a, the extension of a, of the of Kyle. Like you would hope that's any quarterback. You know, you're basically saying that the other guys can't do that. I think any quarterback uh, coached up correctly over a long enough period of time in a supportive, strong environment has the capacity to do that. It's a crossroads decision because either you know the ceiling is what he puts on it, or finally he can like escape that like we just said from a, a prospect perspective and i mean that seems like the style that's rising to the top now are the ones that who can elevate obviously everything around them even when it shouldn't happen all right we did not mention and i that's a little puzzling to me jt maybe you can explain this you didn't mention trey lance as a possibility there what what, what, what are your thoughts on trey lance after you've watched him i like trey lance uh i, I think all these guys are first round picks i just like kellen mon more uh, I, I think Trey Lance off the top of my head, I think he might be the youngest of all these guys. I think he, he, is. he is another guy who has a significant ceiling. He's a little bit more of an unknown. And, and this is just my own lazy take. Cause I've only probably watched three games of him ever play, but I love that program. Uh, I think they do a lot of things, right. You know, he just hasn't played a lot of football and you know what they've asked him to do compared to the other guys to me is less similar to what he'll be asked to do on Sundays. doesn't mean that he can't do it. I just have seen less of it, and if I if I had to roll with four guys or that three four slot, for me it would be Fields and Mond before it would be Lance Jones Trask that kind of next tier. Interesting. If if there was one quarterback, if I could like fast forward three to five years from now, I might want to see Trey Lance the most because like some of those to me individual traits that you see where like the ball launches from his hands, how he can just be a powerful runner, make obviously dynamic plays on the ground just from the pocket. But it goes back to what you said. I think it's just 18 college football games and only averaged 16 attempts per game in those as well. Like the body of work just necessarily isn't there. I think he turns 21 this summer. I'm just hyper intrigued to see the development of Trey Lance. Crazy quarterback class. And I don't know if if, if you think of this the same way if, if it's a different feeling for you because i know you've been doing this for a while but like it we had five round one quarterbacks in in 2018 we had four in 2020 and we'll likely get five this year but to me jt this class just like feels different and i think it, it's what we're talking about even when we say things we we like about prospects even when we we find negatives like even you and i while we might not get everything that's people are saying about Zach Wilson, we still consider him a first round player. Like the talent of this group is, is astronomical. Yeah. It's a fun group. I've had a blast. Just, I just enjoy it as a fan of football. It's fun for me to sit here and watch what these teams are doing, what these guys are doing at the collegiate level. And, and I'm fascinated to see how it will translate in the other thing about, you know, whoever falls later in the first round, I know it will be a, a bummer of a draft day for them, but in reality, it's probably best. I know that's hard for people to, get when they're you know struggling watching these guys on tv but you're going to a better organization you know the lamar jackson thing one is the one that always comes to my mind where it's like you know all of a sudden he's not going to be in the first round now he's in the first round now he's had a great organization and now you know everybody wants to be like that now he's the mvp and so it's just it's got a funny way to work out it's hard to kind of separate those things while you're in the moment and i can only imagine you know I was nowhere near being projected as a first round pick. So the, the dollars that are associated with that are no joke, but it's uh it's fascinating to see it play out. But you did play in NFL Europe, JT, any good, any good stories with NFL Europe or one that you can pass along real quick before I let you go. <laughs> I was going to say, I got a lot of stories from NFL Europe, none of which are <laughs> going to pass along. Uh, no. <laughs> 
honestly, my favorite part, well, there was a lot of favorite parts. My, the, the best part was just being able to play. You know, I just didn't get a chance to play. As you're, if you're a backup, you don't get a chance to play. And so playing as a quarterback, and it really saved my career twice. I, I played well enough to get traded the first time and then played well enough to get another four or five years in the league the second time. And so it, it, it saved my career. The, the second time I was there, my brother was playing rugby in France. And so wow. he would come to my games, then I would train to his games. And uh, it was a lot of fun. That's amazing. That's amazing. All right, JT, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And everyone out there, I know you're already going to line up the quarterback school on YouTube. He'll tell you all about his Patreon, his all of his other projects over there. It's amazing what you're doing. And I really appreciate the 51 minutes that you gave me, JT O'Sullivan. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Let's do it again. All right. Now time for Charles Robinson. Like I said, if you're a Patriots fan, Eagles fan, Packers fan, we're really a fan of any team. We, we go through so many. This is an excellent conversation on, on team building and what certain franchises have told us thus far and also what they're going to be doing in this month's NFL draft and beyond. I did want to mention that Charles's co-host on his podcast, Therese Paler, passed away unexpectedly back in February. I did not know Therese at all, but I found it amazing how many people spoke out the day after about how he opened doors for them, how he set up opportunities for them, helped careers, got careers started. There's not a GoFundMe out there, but I did ask Charles how we can help. And he said, if anyone is interested in donating to the Therese A. Paler Scholarship Fund, they can reach out to him on Twitter. Again, that's just at Charles Robinson or via email at WindyCityScribe at Yahoo.com, which I absolutely plan on doing. All right, we'll start here with Charles by asking what the general feedback, the general sense was from the NFL after seeing, witnessing the 49ers trade up to number three overall. A few days before this trade went down, because of everything that's going on with Deshaun Watson, these civil suits, um, I had been corresponding with a number of the franchises that were initially thought to be in, interested in Deshaun Watson on the trade block. And so while I'm corresponding with these franchises, you know, the dialogue you're having is sort of they're asking questions about like, hey, what, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like, is there something we're not seeing? You know, they have questions about the lawsuits. Some of them wanted to see copies of the lawsuits. And I had a chance to talk to a um, member of the personnel department with the 49ers and they had no interest at all in what was going on with Watson. They had no interest in this. And, and I thought to myself, either, you know, they have someone in security working on this and they have, yeah. they're, they're already very high level tapped in or something else is going on. Like they're just, they're, they're, they're turning in a different direction and maybe they are sticking with Jimmy Garoppolo. And then obviously a few days later, it comes out that, you know, this huge shakeup where they moved to the number three pick in the draft. And there's quarterbacks all over this deal. Um, and, and when I say that, what I mean is, I think San Francisco moves to three for a quarterback, um, which could potentially affect their veteran quarterback. I think that Miami drops to 12, then moves back up to six, which I do not think takes them necessarily out of the Deshaun Watson picture right. um, and may actually even enhance it, depending on how you're looking at that. The, the way I look at it being sort of quarterback related for the Eagles you now have moved yourself to 12, which is probably out of range of the four top wide receivers in this draft. So I'm wondering what the, the thought process was there for Philly, you mm-hmm. know, getting out of six because Kyle Pitts, the tight end, isn't going to be there at 12. And I don't think the top wide receivers will make it to 12. And so 
That's quite a statement, Charles, because, I mean, I remember a few years ago we would have, you know, three top ten wide receivers and Corey Davis, Mike Williams, John Ross, and obviously necessarily none of those have lived up to top ten potential. So having four pass catchers go within the top 11 picks would would be absolutely amazing. And you're so good at this, Charles, that you basically answered every single angle that I was (laughs) hoping to get uh, throughout this entire process. So let's break it down a little bit. We know at number one it's going to be Trevor Lawrence. So done, dusted. Then number two, based on Ian Rappaport's tweets – referencing back to the Philadelphia Eagles that if they were to move up to a quarterback, it probably would have needed to be at three. If Zach Wilson was available, if we put a to B to C together, that almost certainly means that Zach Wilson is the quarterback and the pick here at number two. So now Charles, my question is what's next for, for Sam Darnold? Is this just a simple Josh Rosen like situation that we saw from a couple years ago? Yeah, it would be. If Zach Wilson is the pick, and I believe their evaluation in terms of the next best quarterback behind Trevor Lawrence, and by the way, the the Jets' evaluation on Trevor Lawrence was off the charts. I mean, they love Trevor Lawrence, and I think it hurt them losing that top pick. But I do think that they like Zach Wilson considerably, and I think Mm -hmm. he is a lock at the the second slot as QB2 on their draft board. What it means for Sam Darnold is, unfortunately for Sam Darnold, it's going to be a dump situation. They're going to – they would – uh, shop him around uh, as we get closer to the draft and find a, find a trade suitor, very similarly to what the Arizona Cardinals did with Rosen. They trade him on draft day. Um, but I, th- I think the Jets will stretch this out a little bit. I, one thing I would say about the Jets, though, that's interesting, don't count them out of Deshaun Watson if Deshaun Watson somehow miraculously does end up getting dealt prior to the draft. Um, I would say if the Houston Texans, Nick Casario, the general manager, he says, hey, you know what? We're taking calls now. Like we're picking yeah. up the phone. Everybody's interested. Um, whoever's left, let's let's start talking through this process. I, I truly 100% believe that the Jets would check in and say, okay, let's talk price. Let's see what what exactly the outline is now with Deshaun Watson facing what is now 21 civil suits, right. um, and if that affects our our situation here. But I think the Jets would have to do a lot of backgrounding there. Um, and so there's still moving parts there at number two. I have no idea how to have the Deshaun Watson conversation, but let's hit on that now because it kind of is the topic that is overhead of all of this, right? Yeah. Like who knows if all of these moves would have happened without him being basically unable to be traded at this moment, right? Because no organization is going to trade for him before the civil suits are settled before there's something agreed upon because you can't go into, even if it lowers his price from a a, a trade market, you can't go into this with that much uncertainty around this massive of a situation. Right. And I, and I think it, it comes down to an ownership conversation because it would be an ownership trade. Like no matter how much your head coach or general manager likes Deshaun Watson, it's 100% an ownership trade for the team that's onboarding him. If there are teams that would still be interested, what happens in that ownership conversation is this. They game out the worst case scenarios and they say, okay, let's say he gets suspended for a year, misses all of 2021. Are we willing to give up the compensation, have him sit out a season, and would that be worth it for us in the long run um, to have that level of talent inside our franchise. And then what do we do for that one year where we're basically, we're going to have a placeholder 
at quarterback for him. Um, and then, you know, what do we do from the PR, you know, ramifications? But even to get to that point, I think a team has to decide where it, where it, where it falls on the idea of his guilt or innocence, and then they are now are backing him. And, mm-hmm. and here's why we're backing him, and that would have to be a very overt public message by whatever franchise that was engaging in this. But, it, you know, to me, it would have to be a very aggressive owner, and it would have to be someone who I think has a history or an understanding of dealing with risk assets. And you know who has that history? I mean, you look at David Tepper. I was just about to say this name. We'll jump to number eight right now. You know, there are so many people outside of the league right now connecting the Panthers to a, a rookie quarterback. And you and I haven't even texted about this. But I think if the Panthers were in on a name other than Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson, they undoubtedly would have made this move that San Francisco made up to number three, because this is not an owner who is risk averse, who would be scared to put a massive package together if this building was in love with a quarterback. And they simply, because they didn't make that move, they simply are not. And I also think though, Charles, that they, in their mind, heading into this offseason, worst case scenario was to have Teddy Bridgewater as a starting quarterback in 2021 again. That's why, by all accounts, they offered the number eight overall selection for Matthew freaking Stafford. And they probably thought they were going to get him. And the Jared Goff dynamic part of it to Detroit probably played a factor in that. But David Tepper is not as patient as he seems from the outside looking in. (laughs) He is, I mean, even when he hired Matt Rule, even when he came into first ownership in his first press conferences, even before then, you know, he talked about process. He talked about patience. He he used all those terms. Guess what? One or two losing seasons changes all of that. And I think because of that, they aren't interested, again, in a rookie quarterback not named Lawrence or Wilson. And they're chasing veterans. But... All these veterans, the ones that they would want to go out after, to me, unless it's Sam Darnold, are off the market now. I'll put this into a couple of different lanes for you. I think that if if David Tepper sees Deshaun as a distressed asset and feels like there is a price there that can be paid, and if the sacrifice is losing him for a season and still getting him into the fold, and then also feeling like on the the back end of it, you know, that they actually feel like from a PR standpoint, you know, this is someone that they can um, back. I feel like, you know, that's something that David Tepper would, would pursue. I also feel like, so that's lane one. Lane two, right. I think people have to understand, it only took David Tepper from talking to people around the league who are very dialed into what's going on with the, the Panthers front office, the coaching staff, and also with David Tepper because David Tepper likes to talk. Um, David Tepper, it took him one season to figure out that, you know what, Teddy Bridgewater is not, I don't think he's the guy. Because this wasn't the the initial plan. I mean, the the initial plan was to basically have Teddy as the starter for the first two seasons and and bring along a young quarterback in year two. And one, Charles, what the heck did they expect was going to happen? I mean, all of us from the outside said, okay, if you sign Teddy Bridgewater to be a one or two year player, you're going to go five and 11. You're going to go six and 10. You're going to find yourself in somewhat of, of no man's land of quarterback, quarterback purgatory. And, and that's what happened. Now, there's also the layer of, well, was he a Marty Herney signing? Should Marty have to bring him to Washington with him? I mean, I've heard that comment being made around the NFL right now. The owner 
it's, it's such an interesting path because he's so new to this, right? Can it go in the direction of, oh, this is a good owner that understands risks. And because of that, this team is going to make moves that might be uncommon for others and put them a step ahead. Or could it head in the direction of other owners that we see get into the middle of things, meddle a little bit, and maybe make some hasty, impatient decisions? It's certainly a path that I am absolutely tracking. One other factor that I think plays here, and I do think Tupper is more impatient than people realize, but he's also as observant as people think he is. So, you know, he's he's got his eyes open. He's watching the league, clearly understands what kind of talent Deshaun Watson is. I will drop one name here that I think is interesting and could impact beyond 2021. I think it is worthwhile paying attention to what happens ultimately with Aaron Rodgers. Because Aaron Rodgers right now, the situation in Green Bay, they have not restructured his contract to what I think his liking would be, which is essentially restructure me, give me more guaranteed money in 2021, give me more guaranteed money in 2022, so that everybody on the team knows I'm, I'm the guy the next couple of years. There's no, you know, yes, I understand you took Jordan Love, but I am your quarterback. I just want MVP. This is the commitment I want here. I think if he goes into the season without a restructured contract, and they continue to groom Jordan Love for that spot, I think what's going to end up happening is you're going to have a Tom Brady-esque situation following the 2021 season, and there are going to be some teams out there that are going to go, hmm, have we strengthened our roster enough to the point now where we can bring in an Aaron Rodgers who may have a good three, four strong years left in the tank and instantly turn our franchise around the way that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did. Now, now, granted, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers had a lot of talent on that roster. We right. can't overlook that. And and the big, giant, functional missing piece was the quarterback. Who wasn't um, turning the football over and putting his defense in disadvantageous yes, positions and all absolutely. that. Absolutely. But but I will say, I think, I think Aaron Rodgers is a guy that if you asked me what would the coaching staff lean into in 2022, what – could be the message to Tepper, like, hey, we think we can turn this around. If you're talking about the coaches, it would be a veteran guy who could come in with a team surrounding them that's very good. Unless their names are Lawrence and maybe even Wilson. It just doesn't line up anymore. Like, I, I firmly believe that the Panthers said at eight, they're not even taking a quarterback. Unless, like, leading up until that week, Tepper thinks, okay, I seriously do not want to watch Teddy for another 17 right. games. And then... You know, if Justin Fields is there, if Trey Lance is there, if another name is there, then we're going to take them. And maybe even that pushes them to trade, you know, a third or a fourth for Sam Darnold. I don't know his evaluation. You know, he turns 24 in June, and that's about the same age as Joe Burrow is right now. But it, it seems like an almost a conclusion that so many are jumping to that, oh, Panthers need a quarterback. They're going to take one at eight. I don't think that's true at all. I and, don't think that's true at all. And also, I, I think, too, um, to loop Watson back into this, too, and the reason why I really think – this continues to be a franchise that could potentially all the way up to the draft be in play for him. Yeah. Remember, David Tepper was a minority owner of what franchise? The Pittsburgh Steelers. Yep. Pittsburgh Steelers had a quarterback who went through a very dicey um, situation in Ben Roethlisberger where he was accused by a woman of, of rape. Mm -hmm. And he saw how that unfolded and he saw ultimately this franchise sticking by Ben Roethlisberger, what that turned into. For the, for the Pittsburgh Steelers. So I don't think he's necessarily completely backing away from Watson. I do think that across, if you ask, like if you went across the entire franchise and you asked people about Watson, I do think you would hear some people say, I don't think we should give up that much. I don't think mm -hmm. we should give up, you know, 
they want three first round picks. They want, you know, multiple seconds and some starters on defense. Or even let's let's just say that the the asking price drops now because of the situation uh, that Watson finds himself in. Even if it's three first round picks and say a couple thirds, I still think there are some people who go, no, those are the lucrative pieces that are going to build this franchise into a position where we could go get, say, an Aaron Rodgers or a veteran after the 2021 season, and they're going to have a very good, complete team around them. What should we read into the Texans signing both Tyrod Taylor and then trading for Ryan Finley? Like, it's not just one quarterback they right. added. It's, it's two quarterbacks they added, and they might not carry three for the entire season. Like, what's next here in the story of Deshaun Watson? I think they were prepared to deal him. Honestly, yeah. like I think that they knew, okay, like this is once he met with David Culley, the head coach, and said, Sorry, man, I'm I'm it's not happening. I'm not coming back. This is what it is. I'm I'm going. And I think the Texans had a strong suspicion that he's felt for a while that he wanted to go to the Miami Dolphins. Like, as in this wasn't something that just happened in the last couple months, that maybe during the course of the 2020 season he had his eye on the Miami Dolphins. Um, I think that they thought, okay, now that he said this to Kali, when we get on the other side of the first week of free agency, um, maybe the second week of free agency, we're going to reach out to all these teams and we're going to say he's available. Just know there are multiple teams interested and this is going to go to the best offer. So come with your best offer. We're not going to do this back and forth. You need to lay out your strongest best offer right now because you're not going to get a second bite at the apple. We're going to choose from the offers that get put on the table. Now all of a sudden that's changed and the Texans are sitting there saying, well, we don't know how this is going to play out. We don't know if he's going to be on the commissioner's exempt list. We don't know if he could potentially be suspended. There's just a very opaque element that comes along with the NFL's investigation. And they're watching like the rest of us right now, these opposing attorneys kind of duking out the public relations game, either through litigation and then response to litigation or, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's just really messy right now. Yeah. And I, I still firmly believe that Watson will never play for the Houston Texans again. I absolutely believe that. And I think if that means them taking a lesser price for him at some point in the future, that will happen. Isn't the timeline though, even too tight for this to be resolved before, oh, yeah. you know, April 29th. Oh, there won't, there won't be a resolution. Before. Right. I, the only the only way this would be resolved prior to the end of April would be, I think, almost right now, um, Rusty Harden, who is Sean Watson's lawyer, saying, you know what, um, we're looking at literally years and years and years of litigation if all these civil suits, because they're all separate, it's unlikely we're going to get them all shoved together in one class, meaning we, it's just one giant lawsuit with, you know, 20 plus accusers. Um the only way that this gets resolved before the end of April is if Deshaun Watson's legal team decides we just need to engage um, the opposing counsel, say, get them, get everybody together, the, all, all of your uh, plaintiffs. We're going to get an outside mediator, which is usually a judge that comes in. You both sides pay this person to mediate out and you come to settlement terms. And mm-hmm. so it becomes a massive settlement. And then, you know, that opens up the road then for, Deshaun Watson to be traded. Now that said, even with a settlement, by the way, doesn't preclude the, the NFL from suspending him. It doesn't preclude the NFL from putting him on the, the commissioner's 
uh, exempt list. So there's really two roads here that have to be dealt with, the legal side and then the NFL side, which is, you know, they don't necessarily run a parallel path. Just because you you resolve one doesn't automatically mean the other one is resolved. You mentioned the Dolphins at six, and we're jumping around here, but how it still does not necessarily preclude them from being in the Deshaun Watson conversation. Now, we also just talked for 15 minutes about how basically every single front office that even considers it, when you do their own homework and feel comfortable with that. But the Dolphins at six are are fascinating because obviously we saw that they took Tua in the top six last season and treated him differently than so many other young quarterbacks throughout the league in the last 10 years that whenever he did get overwhelmed momentarily, they would pull him from games and say, okay, we want this to just be a moment and not last for an entire season, which fascinating to me. I love it. And it's, it's, it's something that, again, is, is uncommon, but hopefully we see it more frequently moving forward because I think it's going to help his development. Hopefully it'll help his development. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a snowball effect that can happen with quarterbacks. And I do think there's, as you said, I think there's some wisdom in maybe not approaching it the way historically it's like, ah, well, you know what? Um, let him be Josh Rosen and just get drubbed an entire season and then hope that he can dig his way out of this just an absolute avalanche of adversity and then come out on the other side of it completely okay. Such a huge confidence position. And I don't mean just from the standpoint of the quarterback. It's also the surrounding players. If they lose confidence in the quarterback, whether he's confident or not, there's going to be problems on your roster. So I think there's some wisdom there. But I think what's interesting about the Dolphins and Tua is that, and I don't, I mean, I don't know how much this has really played out publicly, but Stephen Ross was a huge influence on that pick. Hmm. Tua was a very big Stephen Ross pick. Like he absolutely was behind Tua being selected, really wanted Tua uh, to be their quarterback. And I think in their in this idea that Miami could pursue Deshaun Watson, you have to keep that in your mind that the owner was someone who literally was just behind you selecting Tua at number five. I think a lot of the Deshaun Watson interest in Miami's end is I think Chris Greer driven. What's the prevailing sense on Chris Greer now from like an NFL perspective? Because this is the type of move that is uncommon, right? I mean, yeah. you go from three to 12, already have this deal set up. When you get to 12 to hop back up to six, uh, you still have a boatload of, of future assets. You have turned Laramie Tunsil, who's a, a great player, yeah. but <laughs> into you know, multiple starters at multiple yeah. positions and multiple future starters as well. Is there a prevailing sense across the league what Chris Greer is doing right now? Herschel Walker-esque, you know, yeah. what they've turned Laramie Tunsil into. And remember, Laramie Tunsil was a player that slid to them, um, by the way. I think he was taken 13th, you know, in a year that a lot of people thought he was a top five pick. So um, The gas mask is a, a genesis <laughs> for the entire Miami <laughs> Dolphins organization. It is, really, yeah, really. But yeah, I mean, he's turned it, obviously, into these five first-round picks and others. You talk about a situation where Greer, where I, I think opposing front offices like the move because they go, look, if they're still in it for Watson, which you can you know, decide whether or not you, know, you think that's a good idea, you did offload a very valuable draft asset, but you, it was, it's only three picks difference. So the difference between three and six is not that immense in that I think front offices like it because they know it's going to be such a quarterback-driven draft that six is going to be an absolute elite level player that's going to slide to that spot because of the quarterback packing that goes on in the top three of this draft. So, um, and in my brain, I just connected that, like, if they want to, 
build a better package than the Panthers and David Tepper, they can absolutely do that. Now it's six and two Exactly. And two yeah. spots ahead, even in this class, yep. Um, yep. ahead of, of the Panthers. And people can sit there and go, well, three firsts, two seconds, and a couple defensive starters. Somebody just says, here's five firsts. Yeah. Okay, well, and, and especially if you're, if you're talking to Nick Casario, who comes from an organization in New England, right. where what do you do with your picks? You turn first-round picks into more picks. Maybe Nick Casario goes, hey, you know what? I can turn five first-round picks into 20 draft choices eventually. And is Deshaun Watson worth 20 shots in the draft at – who knows what different positions and, you know, basically laying a whole new foundation for this team of which I've already swapped out like 30 guys at this point. You know, I, I, I could see that being an attractive position. Now, if you're my, and if Miami goes, well, you know what, that it ultimately didn't work out. Yeah. Now you have the best tight end in the draft who might be a matchup nightmare in the NFL, potentially falling to you. You have Jamar Chase who, could be the best wide receiver in this draft. Who you can um, pair with Devontae Parker and a Devontae one-year contract prove-it deal with Will Fuller. Who knows? I mean, they have so many assets that it's not like, oh, this move to 12 to 6 means they aren't intrigued to a quarterback as we just outlined. But if they wanted to, they could really build something around to it. I think that's the direction uh, you're going in right now. Yeah, I don't think – I mean, you could get the best offensive tackle in the draft. Right. You get the best defensive player in the draft. You could literally get the first defensive player off the board at 6. You could get the best tight end. I mean, you're, it's an it's a fantastic spot to be in at six, and and I can understand why Eagles fans are losing their minds hmm. because the team traded out of six, where there are probably going to be a lot of options sitting there. And and I actually think what's really also still intriguing for Miami too, say Mac Jones does go to San Francisco at three. But here's the thing about Kyle Shanahan, he has, and I mean this in a good way, he has an arrogance about him hmm. when it comes to his offensive system, and then also working with quarterbacks that I think you can't discount him taking a Justin Fields or a Trey Lance at three, because I think he's sitting there. And if he sees one of those guys as the best quarterback left to him on the board, he's going to go, I'm Kyle Shanahan. you think I can't design an offense for this guy? You think I can't make this guy a better quarterback? Cause that's what I do. Um, I think you can't just automatically put Mac Jones at three. Now, if Mac Jones does go at three, you're sitting there and you're the Miami Dolphins. When you make this trade, you're going, a lot of people weren't sitting there thinking Max Jones would go three. So that just pushes one more player down to us and probably a quarterback at six. So, hey, what if another team behind us, I, I doubt this, but what if the New England Patriots are like, we got to have that guy. We never do this, but this is, this is a different offseason like any you've ever seen for our organization. So we're going to do the unthinkable move to six and get this quarterback that no one had, you know, really pegged us for. Let's talk about the mindset of the 49ers right now, because – it reminds me a little bit of where the Eagles were when they traded up for, for Carson Wentz. I think they were yes. right outside of the top 10. And it's because, one, they th- never wanted to be in this position ever again. You know, you talk about the arrogance. I'm sure Kyle rubs off a little bit on, on John Lynch, and they just think they have an incredible roster. They probably thought they had the best roster in the NFL when they failed in just a quarter to not win the Super Bowl a couple years ago. And so they probably still think, despite having some moving pieces since then, that, hey, we have an NFC championship type roster. We're never going to be inside the top 15, top 12 ever again. So now is our time to take this shot. They have a guy in mind who they want at number three. And I can't help. And tell me, what did you receive when Kyle and I thought was one of the most honest press conferences, a head coach? and GM have given in a very long time. Like he basically laid out the quarterback position and how they're going to handle it. And that seems so rare 
in, in, in this generation of the NFL. You know, some of the things that they're saying about Jimmy, for example, could still be pro- posturing. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they could, they could be playing that hand and going, look, it's just words. And, and this is what it's going to take to get the New England Patriots to come around to where we want them to be. Or maybe the Houston Texans. Maybe the Texans can offload Deshaun Watson and are going to need a quarterback. And, you know, Nick Casario does have a background with Jimmy Garoppolo. But we're going to continue to posture. I see the methodology of it, and I, I even see the methodology of not necessarily feeling like you absolutely have to um, move Jimmy Garoppolo and and make whoever you draft your starter, particularly when you consider Jimmy Garoppolo doesn't make it through seasons. He doesn't. Right. So there's a chance that your rookie is going to end up playing anyway. Why not take that pressure off him coming in? I'm, I'm a, I am a proponent of keeping good quarterbacks rostered so that they become the flak jacket that protects the younger guys so they don't automatically have to walk in going, hey, well, of course, that guy's going to start. Yeah, I think Kyle, even in that press conference, said, hey, we just don't want what happened to the last three seasons to happen to us this season. Again, that suggests that they love the roster in the position that they're in, and they just don't want to rely on one quarterback who's been injured in the past. All right, so we've talked a lot about all of these teams. We haven't talked about the Eagles very much. And the Eagles one is fascinating because it kind of started right at the end of the 2020 season. Well, I should say maybe the second half of the 2020 season, because Charles, if they didn't pull Jalen Hurts from this game and they won that final week contest, they might not have been in that number six draft slot. And now, one, it's the benefit of them. But two, this would suggest, at least for 2021, that Jalen Hurts is going to be the starting quarterback. Now, I still wonder, and I still don't know the answer, and maybe you do, like who is the biggest proponent of Jalen Hurts in that building? Was it Doug Peterson? Is it Jeffrey Lurie? Is it someone else? Like, I still don't know who has his back in that team right now. I think it's Howie Roseman. I do. And I know know a lot of people are sitting there and they're saying, well, Word came down from, you know, Jeffrey Lurie that he doesn't want, you know, another situation where quarterback, you know, there's a there's a quarterback controversy or whatever. Um, I think that and here I'll tell you what leads me to think this. Number one, when Hertz was selected um, by the Eagles, a couple of things you have to remember. The draft that Hertz was selected in in the second round, it was not a war room situation. Everybody was spread out and you had general managers at home making draft selections. Mm-hmm. Howie Roseman wasn't in a room where he could go, you know what? Hey, I know we, we've all said we like Jalen Hurts. We've all said we want to take Jalen Hurts. And I know we all thought we're going to take him in the third. Because I do believe that. I think the Philadelphia Eagles going into that draft thought, Hurts is going to be our guy. We want him as a good young backup quarterback who maybe we can flip later or whatever, figure out what we want to do with him. And he's probably a third-round pick. And I think you had Howie Roseman sitting there going, He's not going to be here in the third. I'm taking this guy. Like, I'm taking him because he's worth taking at this position. It's valuable enough. And in case Carson Wentz, you know, something goes awry with Carson Wentz, he is a good enough player that I believe he can be turned into a good starting quarterback. So he comes off the board second or in the second round, which, by the way, talking to people around the league are all confident Hurts wouldn't have been there in the third for them. Wow. So 
you know, I, I'll say so that. So if he turns out to be good, it was a smart move. I mean, I, the, yeah. the progression of Jalen Hurts, and I'm, I know you watch Alabama football on Saturdays, uh, the progression of Jalen Hurts from his Alabama days, staggering. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't think, to be perfectly honest with the audience out there, I didn't think Jalen Hurts was like an NFL player dating back to his Alabama days. And then when he did to Oklahoma and obviously during his rookie season, I could not be more impressed just with what he has shown and how he looks. And I'm so thrilled that he likely gets a full season to be the starter. Yeah, and you know, you know what he reminds me of a little bit. And I'm not saying it's going to go this way, but think for how long. You know, remember when Dak Prescott became the starter for the Dallas Cowboys and it was like, yeah, you know, really, do we really think like, okay, granted, he started his entire rookie season, but here are all these parts around him, the offensive line, Zeke, all these things. Do we really think this guy is going to be this player? Do we really think he's going to grow into being um, a top-level starting quarterback? It, I mean, yeah, the Cowboys believed it. They watched him. You know, the, the team around Dak Prescott believed in him, and they saw something in him, particularly leadership-wise, that was commanding and and how he carried himself and the work that he put in, everyone there believed in him. So I think there's an element where Hertz, um, I think inside that team, there are people that are definitely aligned with Hertz being someone that may have even been better to develop than Carson Wentz, you know, turning around Carson Wentz. And I'll say this about Carson Wentz too. Part of the narrative that came out on that afterward was that Carson Wentz was an extremely um, stubborn player Hmm. and that, Yes, there were a lot of people in his ear in terms of developmental things and mechanics and all these different things, and that there were times where he got sloppy and reverted back to old habits. But the crossroads between Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz was about whether or not Carson Wentz was going to listen to Doug Peterson and buy into it. And I think that's part of the reason why both are gone, because you had Doug Peterson who was like, I'm not making staff changes for you guys anymore for the front office and the ownership. He's like, no, this is my staff. Forget it. I want to do what I want to do. And then I think you had Carson Wentz who's like, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not I'm I'm gonna fight what you're telling me and I keep reverting into these things. And I think you had a general manager and an owner who were sitting there going, These guys both seem to be they're not willing to change in the way. Yeah, like <laughs> this is a lot harder than it really needs to be. Right. And because usually we, you see like the power struggle, one went out right. and then one leaves town. But this one, the owner was like, look, both of you are people I cannot handle. I'm getting you both out of here. And we're moving forward in a new direction. So when we talk about Hertz and we talk about Philly moving to 12, you have the cap issues with Philly, you know, and it, it's, it's just how it is going to be tight. This is something that's going to, you know, last into next season. And, you know, maybe at 12, you luck out and the you know, the best offensive tackle in the draft falls to you at 12. Maybe mm-hmm. things just stack up a certain way where all of a sudden you have, you know, uh, um, you know, Panay Sewell ends up sitting there for you at, at 12 where I've had people literally tell me they think he could be the best or second best offensive tackle in the NFL three years from now. Hmm. Like, I don't know if I believe that or not, but I'm just saying, like, if if that is your evaluation where you're like, hey, this is a – franchise drop him in whatever side you want left or right and he's going to be your your superstar you know tackle who anchors the line hey if you move back to 12 now you look pretty smart because you got a guy who could have been in a non-quarterback dominated draft or a non-wide receiver dominated draft maybe he's a top five pick we've covered almost all the bases you know we've talked about the top two we talked about 49ers at three talked about the panthers talked about the eagles we have not mentioned a few names because look there are going to be three quarterbacks taken in the top three, and then there's probably two more that are going to be 
taken and selected in the first round. Falcons at four, possible? Maybe Broncos at nine? I mean, with the Falcons at four, it's a crossroads moment for them, too, because either they say, hey, we know we have a new general manager, a, a new head coach. We're building this roster. Do we want to add a pass-catching weapon in a Kyle Pitts and someone else, more offensive line help possibly for Matt Ryan? Or do we want to think further ahead and go after while we're in a top five selection and select a quarterback that we like. I mean, the Broncos at nine, we just talked about. And the one that highly intrigues me, Charles, is the Patriots at 15, because we have yet to see what Bill Belichick does when he identifies a quarterback who he thinks is the one. And that is something that I cannot wait to happen because we've seen organizations over the last Two decades do this every three or four years, and that fan base has not had to endure or see what happens in those moments, and I can't wait for it to happen. Talk about the Broncos at nine. It's kind of a blank template here because George Payton, obviously the general manager there, it's not going to be – the rodeo is not going to be led by uh, John Elway. It is going to be a George Payton draft. and That's new. Yeah, it is new, and we don't know. know, I've talked to people in the personnel department there, and they're like – the John ways and kind of the, you know, how that all used to work. It's not how we do things here anymore. Like it's wow. different. And the, and the, the power structure and the selection is absolutely going through George. It's going to be a George pick. And so we're going to learn a lot about what is finally George Payton is this general manager. It should have happened with the 49ers. John Lynch got that job, but now we, we got George Payton here. We're going to see exactly what it looks like for this guy who had a Chris Ballard esque, sort of run to general manager where there was interest for years and years and years. Um, so the Broncos, I think, are it's going to be fairly revealing to see how, whether or not he decides I'm starting with the quarterback, if there's a quarterback there, which, by the way, he might not be there at nine. And then with the Patriots, what I think is interesting about the Patriots is it has been a different offseason for them. They spent a lot of money. You got Robert Kraft coming out and admitting, hey, our drafts weren't great. No kidding. Like, we've been watching for a while. <laughs> and, there, and there's a reason why you have to spend a lot of money in free agency. It means you probably screwed up in the draft for a number of years. Um, you know, but it, so if there's sort of an offseason where I could see, you know, things changing a little bit and, and them taking a, a swipe at maybe a Trey Lance or a Justin Fields, depending on how the draft falls and the positioning of it. Yeah, I could see it being this year. This is a free agency was a big mismatch free agency for the for the Patriots. What I mean by that is Bill sat there, Bill Belichick sat there and he said, you know, all right, I can go out and spend 11, 12 million dollars on, you know, some wide receivers who probably aren't going to be really difference makers. The one real mismatch difference maker was Chris Godwin. He got tagged, so he's not out there. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spend the money on these two tight ends who probably have not reached if we're being honest, have not really reached where they could, at least the talent suggests what but they're that's common. Is. That's common for that position. Like we see that so often where good tight end players and prospects don't hit their stride until their second team or, or their second contract. I mean, yeah. the list is so long. You can go from like Greg Olson to, to Jared Cook, Jared to Cook, Delaney yeah. Walker. Like I could keep going on and on and on. What's fascinating. And I've told this story on other podcast, Charles, so I should probably tell it on my own. My lone year with the then St. Louis Rams was the 2011 NFL draft that coincided with the one season of Josh McDaniel. So that was the lockout year. That's when Cam went number one. All those random quarterbacks 
you know, went in that, in that top 15. I think it also was the first year that the NFL draft went to three days. Anyways, how the Rams draft room was set up is that about two or three or four selections, depending on the round, when the Rams were coming up on the clock, um, coaches would start to filter in. Well, obviously they took Robert Quinn in round one. We're absolutely thrilled. We get there the morning of, of day two, around like 10 o'clock. The draft doesn't start till about seven local time. And Billy Devaney, the GM, steps in and says, hey, look, Josh really wants, Josh McDaniels, not me, really wants two uh, tight ends. He, he wants to run maybe, a lot of... <laughs> by the way, maybe they should have asked... Josh Norris. Don't don't what don't get me don't get me started on 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 their late round selections, Charles, because my process would have been better than theirs. Anyways, it was a great experience. I don't want to put that down. Anyways, so Billy Devaney says, "Look, at some point in these next few rounds, we are going to select a a receiving tight end to go along with Michael Ho Ho Manawanui, who I hope people out there remember that name, <laughs> um, because again, I think Josh and correct me if my timeline is wrong here. McDaniel's was just coming from." His, his time with the Broncos, and so he kind of wanted to prove himself again, yep. right? Yep. Um, similar to probably what he's wanting to do now with the Patriots after a quote-unquote down season to prove himself again. And so they get on the board in, in round two, and that morning we had watched two tight ends. It was DJ Williams out of Arkansas and Lance Kendricks out of Wisconsin. They get on the board. And McDaniel walks in, like I said, two or three picks beforehand and just, you know, folds his arms. And Billy looks at him, looks at the rest of the room and says, we're taking Lance Kendricks here in the second round to be our receiving tight end. I mean, it wasn't going to be a revolt or anything, but there were some looks across the table, like scouts, college scouting directors, everyone being like, we did all this work for months and months to just be told, like, we have this board and he's, you know, 25 picks down. I say that story to go to the point of, I think in this moment of Josh wanting to show that he is a good offense coordinator, a good play caller, it's revert back to those mismatches that you're talking about and, and is those two tight end sets. And while they aren't Rob Gronkowski and Aaron Hernandez, he tried to do it. And with the Rams, with Michael Ho, Manawanui, and Lance Kendricks, and I would say the talents of Hunter Henry and Jonu Smith are much closer to the former than they are the latter. I know people in both those organizations that they just came from, okay? And the Chargers absolutely believe that Hunter Henry has a lot left there, like that the ceiling is higher than really anything he ever accomplished there. And the Titans coming out of camp last year uh, before the 2020 season – once everybody was in the building and everything, we're like, I had some guys in the Titans building are like, he's going to have a huge year. Like this mm-hmm. guy's going to, it's going to be the monster year for him. And then it just didn't happen. So I, I get it. You know, you devote, you know, if you're going to devote 20 to $24 million a year to two positions or to two, two players, you can get one great receiver for that. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like if you want to go out and blow an insane amount of money on one wide receiver, but you go get two tight ends after last year's offseason, and although it wasn't the same camp type year, I will tell you this. Normally, when I come out of training camp, the one thing I will hear when I go around to different teams or make all those calls right before 53 hits, all those cuts hit and trades happen, is usually what offensive lineman is going to shake loose. Like, who's, who's available? We need offensive line depth. If it's a backup, if it's a swing guy who can play guard or center ball, whatever. This year, you know what it was? This year before the 2020 season, everybody was like, just tell me any turn and run linebacker, 
And I think teams are really, really hot on they need linebackers who can turn and run. You you see the Patriots that are flowing into this. They know, like, okay, this is where the mismatch is now in the NFL. Look, they had a style of quarterback in Tom Brady who may be the greatest of all time, but the same style for two decades, right? Maybe, maybe and, the greatest of all time. And, maybe. and look, I haven't watched these guys from 50, 60 years ago, so who am I to say, Charles? Listen, who, listen, who am no, I to say? The point I was going to make, Charles, is that that type is so difficult to find now that I think you know their defense getting beat up by the likes of Sean Watson, getting beat up by the likes of Cam Newton for years and years and years. I would be shocked if a major element of that team's next quarterback that they invest in does not have major athleticism. Yeah. You know, like if a Justin Fields gets to number 10 or somewhere even at eight, like if the Panthers want to trade out, so on and so forth. I mean, everyone talks about Kyle Shannon. Sure, any quarterback can fit in a Kyle Shannon offense because there are so many crossing routes that are wide open. You get the ball in the receiver's hands and they run wide. Uh, Josh McDaniels can do a lot of that. And he, I think he's going to be able to enhance the play of someone and and want that athleticism, that acceleration, that big, that big play to raise the ceiling of the team that he can even try to put on top of it. If you don't believe that Bill likes quarterbacks, who go search every Bill Belichick comment on Deshaun Watson yep. and go search every Bill Belichick comment on Cam Newton. And the pre-Cam being on the team, yep. Bill has always said these guys are, it sucks planning for them. Like it is, it's a pain. And, and I think that means something. Charles, I asked you for 25 minutes. You gave me 55 minutes. Uh, I love that. I love you for it. Thank you so much. Uh, you're an absolute gem. You're one of my favorite people to talk to. We haven't done that enough over the yeah. last year, so I'm so glad we get to catch up here. Thank you again. Truly appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Good luck. This Thank is you. amazing. I'm so, happy. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. And eventually, I'm going to be back out on the road again. Like It's looking that way. Like, I'll see you I, out you know, there. Yeah, we'll, we'll see each other out on the road. I'm looking forward to it. Before we get out of here, and I hope you enjoyed that, I enjoyed making it, just want to remind you, if you made it to the end, tell a friend. And if you leave a five-star review, add a comment just below it. Again, you can truly determine how big this first month is for us. Really, really appreciate you. And if you've made it to the end, Underdog Fantasy is made for you. The app is absolutely incredible. So user-friendly, iOS, Android, just search for Underdog Fantasy. They already have NFL best ball games going on right now ahead of the NFL draft. And I cannot wait to reveal everything that we have after the draft. Some really, really fun games ahead. If you've never played best ball, it is simply put the best part about fantasy football. You just draft and then each and every week it sets your optimal lineup. That means no waivers, no lineups, no decisions, nothing. Whoever drafts the best team wins. It's that simple. There are going to be tournaments, and there are one-offs as well. $3, $10, so on and so forth. So if you do deposit for the first time, be sure to use promo code Josh Norris. There's also a link on my Twitter feed. I am going to be creating a whole bunch of content with all of you this summer, during this offseason, during the summer. It's so much better than any mock draft. So again, go try it out. Go play. And if you don't like it, you get your money back. Seriously, I'll refund you up to $100. All right, we'll be back later this week, Thursday night slash Friday morning with a massive surprise and a new guest. Thanks for making it through episode one. Up the villa. Talk to y'all soon. See ya. See ya.